Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, and welcome to Dwell, a Cersei Institute podcast for homeschool moms by homeschool moms. My name is Karen Kern, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Renee Mathis. Hi, Renee. Hi, Karen. So I'm joined today by a very special guest and one who has never been on this podcast before, and that is my husband, Andrew. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> so, so um, I feel a bit out of place. Yeah. The podcast for, for, what did you say? For, for homeschool, homeschool moms, moms by homeschool moms. moms. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just be quiet then. Yeah, no, no, no. So, um, Renee, take it away and give us a little recap from last week and um, tell us what we're going to talk about. This sure, week. sure. Andrew, it's great to have you. And you are welcome here anytime. We homeschool moms love to hear from you. So last time, our special mm-hmm. guest, Andrea Lipinski, uh, talked to us and, and we talked with her about the first of what we are doing in a four-part series on the four elements of classical education. And the first one that we talked about last time was a high view of man and what that means. And basically, it it just means that we view our children and mankind as general, as um, bearing the image of their creator God, as worth teaching, worth educating, and worth educating in a way that honors their nature. And... um, and so we 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 think very highly of our children and and therefore we have a very high calling in that we are called to educate them. Now this week we're going to talk about another in the four elements and um Andrew's going to explain to us why this particular one is actually the most important. So Andrew, we will turn it over to you and let you talk about logocentrism. Well, thank you. So so if the question is, why is it the most important? First, I suppose what I'll say is it's because of what it is. Logocentrism means that the logos is at the center of everything. And the logos is actually a Greek word. It's found in John 1.1, when John says that in the beginning was the logos. Usually that's translated word, which is a good translation. 
but it doesn't capture all that's contained in the idea of a logos. So think of it this way. Point one, Christ is the logos and everything comes from him and, and, and nothing is more important than he. So that's the first reason. Second of all, a logos can be understood really in, in two basic ways. If you if you take the sort of Hebrew approach to a logos, it is a message. So if a preacher says, I have a word for you, right? What he means is not that he has a single word and it's sitting on a plaque like the word the. He means, I have a message for you. And in that sense, a logos is a message. And then there's another way, and this was more characteristic of Greek thought, and that is that a logos is a first principle. So what's the first principle, for example, of zoology? Notice how logi it comes from logos. The first principle of zoology is life, animal life in this case. And so the principle that organizes that study is life. And so we call it zoology. The best example or the best illustration I've ever thought of for this is it's like the solar system. The thing that organizes the, the solar system is the sun, soul. And that's why we call it the solar system. So what organizes everything? What is the first principle of absolutely everything? Well, that's Jesus. And so it's not solar centric, it's logo centric. So we have both of those emphases then that in the logos, we have the message from God, which is Christ. And it's the first principle of everything, which is Christ. And so that's the that's the idea, the basic idea of logocentrism, and that's why it's the most important. It's the most important principle there is in all of existence. So I have a question about that then. When John wrote, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, did his readers um, associate that idea of the logos with what he was saying? Like, was that a common um idea that John was speaking into in that culture I'm not sure what you mean what was what a common well, idea the idea that there's a logos like oh, was that a greek gosh. idea so they they uh, that would have been um uh so new to them that that a logos is a is an idea and Christ is that logos. It was would have been like the first time they'd ever heard anything like that, but they would have had that idea to pin it on. The new thing would be when he said the word became flesh. What when he said the logos was incarnate. That shocked people. But everything else in John, like St. Augustine said in his confessions that he read John 1, and he could have read that in Greek philosophy, word for word. You could everything that John says in the beginning he could have read in a Greek philosopher. And so the, the question you're asking or that you just asked is, was it an idea? Was logos an idea that was common at that time? And I would say, yes, it was in both senses that it's almost like the funny thing is now, okay, our intuition for word as more than a word is so deep that it's a slang term. It used to be anyway. I don't keep up with slang language, but not very long ago, kids would go word. Right. And that was the cool thing to say. They were on to something. Mm -hmm. Right. That that you just said something meaningful is what they're saying. Right. So it was a very commonly understood idea by everybody on the street that there's there's a meaning to things. 
and and something gives the world meaning. There's a message being spoken to us. And then the other thing is that in if you were an educated uh, member of the Roman Empire and spoke Greek, you heard the word logos all the time. It was a it was the controlling principle of a lot of Greek thought. So, it, you know, I could give you a whole long list of all the philosophers that that use the term logos in very important ways that over the course of literally centuries became just a common way that Greeks use the term. That's why I, I like to summarize it all by saying it's a first principle. But that means an awful lot. So the answer to your question is, yeah, it was a very it was a very commonly understood thing in slang language, in everyday language, in technical language, in scholarly language, in philosophical language, at all those different levels, just like it is in English. And the wonder of it is that when Christ came, he was the Logos in all of those senses, and he became the Word made flesh. It's a, it's an unfathomable accomplishment. So, Andrew, would you say that... Um... Something you, you said just a second ago about giving the word meaning and that the world has meaning because Christ is at the center of it. Would you say that's something, I, I think I know what you're going to say, but would you say that's something we've lost nowadays and that's why we need to recover it and that's why classical education is important? Assuming by we, you mean like civilization yeah. generally? Yeah, I would say so. That that in fact it goes back centuries that since around the time of the early enlightenment late renaissance there was a turn away from a world that was meaningful to a world that was mechanistic. And so in a in a in a in a in a meaningful world if you look out into the stars or you look at a tree in your backyard or you look into a garden you ask yourself what does that mean? Right. We say the heavens declare the glory of God. OK, well, what do they say about it? Right. What what are they saying? Or if I look into my garden and I see a mustard seed, let's say, or I just see seeds. Right. The sower went out to sow. Right. That tells us what seeds mean. Right. Seeds. Seeds are made by God to mean something. And what they mean is what it means when Jesus says the sower went out to sow. So that's a meaningful world. Not only because Christ is in the center of it, but like an artist or like oxygen and water, he's present in all of it. He's imminent is the technical term. But the other thing is, what? but the transition that took place was we stopped believing, we again, stopped believing that the world was meaningful and started to believe that it was just mechanistic. Um, that's where the clockwork um, image comes in. God winds up the clock and then walks away from it, right? That's a machine or a mechanistic notion of the world. Well, in a in a machine, like if I go to my car or I go to a clock, I don't open up the, the clock and ask myself, what does that mean? You know, the, 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 the little piece that's in, what do you call those, spring. I don't look at the spring in my clock and say, hmm, what does that mean? What I ask myself is, what does that do? And for about four or five hundred years now, when we look at the world around us, that's that's what our question is. What does it do? And increasingly, the world has become less and less meaningful, which is almost a synonymous synonymous to saying less and less logocentric and more and more mechanistic and hollow and empty and frankly, 
scary. And education has been structured around that. So we don't ask the world what it means in our schools anymore. We ask, how do I live in this world? So yeah, I would say that the loss of the logos happened <laughs> and and the restoration of the logos is the primary goal of classical education, in my opinion. So how does how does a homeschool mom who is, you know, battling diapers and dishes and trying to teach her five-year-old to read and, and trying to keep her eight-year-old paying attention to whatever less than the eight-year-old's paying attention to, how does logocentrism make a difference to her? What a wonderful question. And the way I would respond to that is the same way that it affects the way you look at the stars. In other words, that thing that just happened in your baby's diaper, it's not meaningless. It's not just a mechanistic problem that you have to solve, right? You you don't when you when you go through life thinking everything is a problem that you need to solve, you're not thinking logocentrically. What we should be asking is well, not while it's happening necessarily, but what we should have in our soul is always the realization that it means something. Right. If I walk out into the garden and I and I'm dealing with weeds, I'm not just dealing with a problem. God is speaking to me. He means something. And we know where the weeds came from. We know why they're there. And when we forget what it means, the work becomes nothing but meaningless drudgery. And I would say that when we approach laundry, when we approach house chores, when we approach teaching our children how to read, that's the first thing is we have to always be saying to ourselves, this means something, right? The second thing I would say is that connected to logos is the idea that, or, or connected to meaning. Put it this way, logos not only makes things meaningful, it makes things harmonious. It makes things fit together, but not fit together like a machine in a utilitarian way. It makes things fit together like a symphony. So every instrument has its part to play. And so when you're looking at the work that you have to do or when you're when you're uh, teaching your child how to read, it's not, again, it's not a mechanistic thing you're teaching the child how to do. It's a miracle. And what you're asked, what you're teaching your child how to do when you're teaching them how to read is to ask this one fundamental basic question, which is, what does that mean? It might be, what does that sound, what sound does that that image there, which we call a letter, what sound does that letter make? which is another way of saying, what does that letter mean? Or it might be, what does that word mean? Or it might be, what does that sentence mean? Or it might be, what does that paragraph mean? Or what does that picture mean? But what we're always looking to do is, is to interpret and to interpret more and more deeply everything we look at. Because the Logos is present in everything, everything has meaning. And so we should never, ever reduce it to mechanism, whether it be changing the diaper or cleaning the laundry or gardening and we should also or whether it be a higher level of when we're teaching our child we're never teaching our children so that they can do well on the test so that they can become part of the machine that is our society we're doing it so that they can better interpret a meaningful world that has been spoken by god which they are meant to be at home in can you connect the idea of meaning to truth? So, because when I think of logocentrism having to do with education, 
it to me it means that there is a central idea and that the central idea is true and then it can be it can be perceived it can be communicated it can be taught and that every lesson has a truth to be communicated so is that walking too far down the path from logocentrism or is that at it is that is that part of the core of it the meaning yeah i think it is true true think of it this way christ said i am the way the truth and the life and what he meant was not if you pull me off the shelf and open up the covers you can learn all the facts about existence nevertheless Everything that is true of the universe is true of the universe because he spoke it, because he made it. So he is, in that sense, the source of truth. But he's also the truth at the highest possible um, level of truth, if you want to call it that. He is, I mean, what statement has ever been made that's more, what's the word, mystical? I am the truth. Who, Who would say I am the truth? Right. But all truth flows out of him, that sort of thing. So then when we when we look at around in the world that we're living in. And we and we're trying to say, okay, I want to be able to perceive the truth. Okay, now what's what's happened here and and this connects to last week to the last session when you talked about a high view of man, one of the really, really important realities of man that the Bible teaches is that because we are God's image, God has given us faculties, he's given us abilities that are unique to human beings. The ability to calculate, the ability to tell family history, the ability to to make a beautiful table at dinner time, the ability to turn wheat into bread, right? We, We have all these faculties that are all rooted in the fact that we're God's image. All of those abilities or faculties, every single one of them, has been given to us by God so he can commune with us. All of them. And therefore, if you love a person, one of the fundamental things you're trying to do when you have a high view of a person, one of the basic things you want to do is help that person be what he's supposed to be, what he's made to be. And that means, practically, how do you help this person's faculties or abilities attain excellence? How do you help a boy who's learning how to walk actually walk? How do you make a, uh, how do you help a boy run? How do you help a, a boy who runs fast run really fast? You can draw an analogy between running and morals and and reading and, and every other skill that, that all are rooted in a gift God gave us. Now, the connection I'm making is this. Every single gift God gave us, as I said, is so he can communicate with us, so he can commune with us. That means among our gifts, maybe all of our gifts are this, but it's certainly among our gifts is simply the ability to perceive reality. Right? We can perceive reality because we're the image of God. And so when we learn how to use language, when we learn how to count, when we learn how to divide, when we learn how to play a musical instrument, every one of those things is increasing our ability to perceive reality to perceive the, and I'm equating reality with the truth here, to perceive the truth. And you might say, for example, okay, I I see how that is with words, right? Because you can tell me the truth and then I can can know it because you told it to me. Okay, but what about music? 
How does music help us? And here's the thing. I hope I don't get too too weird here, but every single faculty we have, every, let me let me back up and say every single way that we have that God's given us to perceive the world is a sense, okay? Taste, touch, eyes, right? The sense of sight, okay? That enables us to perceive the world. A sense that is working well is, get this, sensitive. And when it is sensitive, it it means that it sees things better. Now, emotionally, that's not always the case. But physically, if we're sensitive to light, if we're sensitive to color, it means that we're perceiving it well. Of course, diseases create false sense or wrong sensitivities. But the basic point remains that there's a sense. And when that sense is working well, it is sensitive. What I want to suggest to you is that senses given to us are given to us by God so that we can perceive truth. And when we when we see something that is real, it's because the sense is working. Okay. At this point, maybe what I'm saying is too obvious. But then think of it this way. Sometimes we can perceive things that you don't see with the physical senses. Right? One thing we don't think about a lot, although it's there in Hebrews 5 at least, is that we have other senses. We have spiritual senses. We have moral senses. We call it the conscience. Those are things that also can be more or less sensitive. They can be trained. They can be they can be improved. They can become, and, and this is the crucial point, they can become virtuous. They can become virtues. And the virtues are are what we have when the sense works so well that it's excellent. And what we're trying to do in order to see the truth is to train, first of all, the physical senses, and second of all, the intellectual senses, like um, comparing things, a sense of similarity, a sense of proportion, right? Those are intellectual senses. We can see that two things are similar and that they're different. Now we can think about it. And that increases our sensitivity to to what to the reality that's in front of us, okay? And then what that does is it increases our sensitivity to truth. It increases our capacity to perceive truth. And this is why education, classical education, is the cultivation of wisdom and virtue. Because the wise and virtuous person is the one who doesn't just reason his way to truth all the time, but just sees it and senses it. And here's the thing that I'll that I'll I hope it hasn't been really confusing cuz cuz I'm really trying to make this clear to myself and and as simple as possible. But the primary sensitivity that we seem to have in our soul is a sense of on the one hand I could say a sense of proportion but I'll I'll try it another way. It's a sense of harmony. We have a sense that things fit together. We have a sense for um well of, to put it negatively we have a sense for discord. And when we feel discord in something that somebody's telling us, right, that's not because we're rationally thinking it through on paper. It's because we sense it. When we feel that we ourselves are not making sense as we're talking to somebody else, that's a sense of discord. When we when we feel that that um, that color doesn't belong in that picture right there, that's a sense of discord. And that sensitivity to discord is a sensitivity for harmony. And truth is always harmonious. It always sings in the key of Christ. 
And therefore, the logos itself in us is what makes us sensitive to discord and makes us yearn for harmony. The logos itself in us is what makes us able to see the truth. And we can perceive it directly as well as think about it and reason our way to it with arguments. So this is why music is so important. The arts are so important. Physical activity is so important. And why people who just sit around in the study all the time reading books don't become wise because they've reduced reality to to verbal propositions and not descriptions of what's real, of truth. So that was too long probably, but to, to try to summarize it, the point is that God has given us sensitivities, senses, so that we can perceive reality. When they're working well, we are sensitive to very fine distinctions, especially proportions and harmonies. And when things sing together and make sense together in all the different ways that they do, then we sense that we are closer to the truth if we're not there, which, by the way, is why you should play a lot with your kids. You're getting warmer because what you're telling them is you are approaching the truth closer and closer by virtue of the sensitivity that every single little child has. And I think that's an important last point that every child has this. So I'll end with that. Well, Andrew, one, one neat thing that I hear you saying, and I, I definitely see a lot of applications for what we do at home, is um, as we're teaching children to perceive and use the word harmony, that, of course, implies that we've got things coming together to state the obvious. Um, so when we're teaching our children, we show them all these rich connections in between things, or like Charlotte Mason called them, relations. Um and unfortunately, it seems like progressive modern education wants to separate things and drive them apart and compartmentalize them. Um, and, and yet here we're saying, no, history and literature and science all mesh together in a beautiful way. And we can find out how. Well, I would I would say this, though, in a harmony, you don't just throw everything into a stew. Right. There is a thing called history right. and there right. is a thing called literature and there is a thing called science. But what's what's different from the progressive is those it's it's it, the word I like to use is there's those are fragments. They're random. There's no connection between them in the in the let's say in, I'm just going to say in conventional education. You throw these subjects together and you you put them on a syllabus and kids have to go through them. Nobody's sure why, except somebody somewhere said so. But in a logocentric curriculum, you you're going to study. You're going to master, I would argue, you're going to master the seven liberal arts. You're going to master the arts of perception that enable you to see the truth. And so the reason you would study what you would recognize that history is something, that it's not the same thing as literature, but then you would find, okay, what's the boundary between them and what gets them both singing in the same key, right? So even though they're separate things, they still can be in harmony. And so I think, I think, uh, well, yeah, that's that's where I'll leave it. And then if I just confused it, ask me another well, question. Well, I, I was referring back to the story that you like to tell where one of your students said, we can't talk about history because this is English class. And um, right. you you beautifully point out that we absolutely can talk about history in English class because they, they matter to each other. Yeah, they, they're integrated. They're, they're, they're interwoven. I think... I think if I'm not pushing back in any way on what you're saying, but I'm I've heard it in some I've had experiences where people 
want to negate the existence of history and negate the existence of literature and just kind of throw it all together. And I, what I'm arguing here is that they harmonize, they integrate, they augment each other, right? To use the, the musical term, they augment each other. So if something from literature is being augmented by something from history, then it should be used. And if something in history is being augmented by something in literature, it should be used. But you shouldn't go. You shouldn't be in a class that you're calling history. And even there, to be honest, I question the value of a history class. I know I just got in a lot of trouble, but I, I don't. I, I would use history to teach a child his duties and um, to teach them how to read. Those are the two things history are good is good for in, in up to let's say eleventh or twelfth grade. You teach a child their duties, which means their background, and you teach them how to read. But to actually do history. They can't do that. That takes too much expertise. And it's the same with literature. I I would use literature to teach grammar and to teach writing and to teach rhetoric, to teach the things that, that kids can learn at that age, but to actually do literature as a as a thing, that's that's for later. And not everybody even has to do it. But that's maybe that's getting into technicalities. But my point is that what kids can learn is the seven liberal arts. And therefore, that's what they should learn since everything else depends on them. And then the last thing I'll say about that is they augment everything. And I love that word augment so much because because there's an efficiency that we've lost. Right. You think about it right now. People have to go to four years of college and they're still not learning as much and they're still not as educated as a lot of people were when they finished eighth grade 100 years ago. And now they learn other kinds of things. But in terms of the ability to read, write, and do arithmetic, I'll take a 12, 13-year-old kid from 1912 on average against a 12 or 13-year-old kid from today any any day because we don't – we've lost that efficiency because we're trying to teach – well, because everything's fragmented. And, and that's, by the way, back to the mechanism idea, right? A cosmos is in harmony, a machine is a mechanism, and you can just take a machine apart. And, and what's the difference? There's the parts. That's how we've approached education is everything's just machine pieces spread all over the, the, the table in the workshop and nobody even puts it back together. But it's an organism. We've taken an organism and sliced it into, into, it's, into these pieces and we're expecting it to get up and walk around. Well, it's not going to happen. That's why we dream about robots now, because we want the organism still, but we're not going to get it. Not not with the way we structured education. So how how is this idea? Let's go back to robots. How is this idea of truth going to save us from artificial intelligence and the the potential? You know, like I was while you were talking earlier, I was thinking about you were talking about sense, and I was thinking of the phrase common sense. Uh-huh. And now everybody used to know what that is. And, and when you use the word common sense, everybody seemed to understand what you meant. But it's in the greater culture out there, or maybe actually it's only fair to say the the woke culture, which is actually a very small percentage of the people in, let's just say, in America. But like yesterday. This is a bit of a ramble, but yesterday, um, Jill Biden presented an award on Women's Day. She presented an International Women's Day award to somebody who was born a man. And so, you know, 
all of, all of us who can who can look at that clearly think where's the common sense there's no common sense left and so it seems like more than ever we need we need something to hang on to that is true that is the central organizing idea that is Christ that is the logos and then back to my first comment about artificial intelligence um it just seems like we're spiraling totally out of control well, you with make a, that. It's a, so it's it's both that idea of we given a, a woman's day award to somebody who was born a man and then we have all this artificial intelligence like where is where's our human intelligence gone it's interesting that you bring up artificial intelligence and transgenderism it's somehow it seems connected well they are connected they're I, absolutely connected partly because of such a low view of man but without a logos the very nature of intelligence it can't be understood right that when the greeks thought about intelligence and when the romans and christians and and middle ages and, and until recently when people thought about intelligence they were they did not think about something that could be calculated only let me say it, only what and what i mean by that is artificial intelligence as i understand it is based on the binary code of the computer the digital realm it's not intelligence. Right? Intelligence is non-sensory. Okay, so here, here's an example. This, this is somewhat technical, so try to stay with me on this. <laughs> but when you do arithmetic, you give your children physical objects. We call them manipulatives. You show them physical objects, and then they learn what three is and four. They learn how to count. They learn how to add, subtract, multiply, and divide. But your goal in arithmetic should be, and, I, and if it's not, I'll scold you right now, your goal should be to get rid of those manipulatives as fast as possible. What you want them to do is think about four plus two equaling six, regardless of what the physical objects are. Right? Four is a thing, an intelligible was the word, an intelligible idea totally apart from four things. Now, I know there's controversy about that for those of you who are into philosophy, but when they thought about the intelligible, what they meant was the not sensible, the not, and I don't mean sensible like common sense, I mean sensible like touchable, perceived with the senses, the physical senses. When you got rid of the notion of reason as perceiving the, un, the intelligible that can't be put into the sensible, then you created a false form of intelligence. Okay. Intelligence is immaterial. Intelligence will never be discovered by neuroscientists. Intelligence is in the mind. It's the perception of intelligible things, which are not sensible things. But we use sensible things to rise to the level of intelligible things. Okay, again, manipulative. We, we, we use the incarnation to rise to the logos. We, we listen to a parable and we hear a spiritual truth. We see three teddy bears and two teddy bears is five teddy bears, and we perceive an intelligible truth that doesn't need the sensible objects to be there to be true. Artificial quasi-intelligence is an attempt to make everything sensible in the sense that it can be processed by a computer and it's all related to 
one and zero, one and zero. And there's nothing non-sensory and miraculous, which is what our intelligence is. It's miraculous. There's there's nothing. Well, put it this way. In John 1, it says the Logos illumines every man who comes into the world. The, the Logos has never and never will illumine a computer. He has never illumined and never will illumine a robot. Because illumination, which is simple truth, 3 plus 2 equals 5, we know because the Logos enlightens us. Illumination is spiritual. Okay, It's not material. And so artificial... Whatever it is, it's not intelligence. Just like virtual reality, those are two world, words that don't belong together. It's got it's it's a it's a it's a it's I don't know. Is it even artificial? I don't know. But but intelligence, we, we are so far removed from the logocentric, humane view of reality that we are destroying human beings, children now destroying our society because we don't have a principle that we can come back to. We don't have a sun in our solar system. We don't have the capacity to perceive truth. And if we do, we, 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 to be overly dramatic, we scratch our eyes out. We rip our ears off for fear that we will hear something we don't want to hear. And we've lost the sense of proportion. We've lost the sense of harmony. We've lost the perception of meaning. And we've lost the ability to look at something for what it is and say, that means something. And what it means is what God says when he speaks. I'll, I'll just, I want to illustrate that last point very quickly and say, maleness and femaleness mean something. At least they mean the church. But they also mean the Holy Trinity, you look back to Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Maleness and femaleness are not mechanistic. They're not machines. They're not parts that you can that you can uh, replace and, and move around. They're meaningful and they're organic. And so when we when we violate our own bodies, when we neglect our own bodies, then we are defying the image of God. And, and undercutting its meaning. And that's one of the things sin did to us, right? We're all ashamed of our bodies now. We all want to be transfigured. Well, that's another thing that's going to happen in eternity. We're going to get the body we're supposed to have, and it will be glorious, and we'll see the meaning of it. And the, the notion of the notion of anti-logocentrically transforming it, we would never, we, we, it wouldn't even be a conceivable notion. But that's where we are now. We're so far broken and so far fallen, so anti-logocentric that we're anti-human. Well, we have been going for over our half an hour. You need a cheerful thought. <laughs> I know. Where's the hope, Andrew? <laughs> Jesus, the logos, he's coming yeah. back. <laughs> Do you have any last things to say, Renee? Um, no, no, no. Thanks, Andrew. I, I think we really are agreeing with one another in spite of the fact that it sounded like we weren't. Um, and I appreciate <laughs> your your encouragement to homeschool moms to um, continue to work with their kids, to show them what is true and beautiful and and to find the meaning in everyday life. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for being here, Andrew, at the kitchen table with me. 
doing this podcast. And we spent um, a lot of Renee, years at this table. Yeah, Renee over there in Louisiana. So um, thanks to all of our listeners. And until next time, here's to home. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer after for years to come try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.